The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Toward the Brighter Future for Preventing COVID-19 in Patients with Hematologic Malignancies, Leveraging the Power of Current Strategies and Next Generation Agents. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash JXH860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Hi, everybody. Thanks for coming. Thanks for joining us, uh, both in person and uh, virtually. Today, we're going to talk about uh, toward a brighter future for preventing COVID-19 in patients with hematological malignancies. And we're going to talk about using the, some current strategies and next-generation agents. Today's panelists are myself, uh, my colleague, Dr. Heider, um, and my colleague, Dr. Huff. The goals for today are to provide you with a current understanding of the burden that COVID-19 prevention and disease have on the quality of life and activities of daily living of immunocompromised patients with hematological malignancies, to equip you to apply the latest evidence and guideline recommendations in the development of personalized point-of-care prevention plans for these patients, and to prepare you to integrate evidence-based strategies to overcome systems-level, physician-level, and patient-level barriers to it accessing essential COVID-19 prevention methods. Kicking this off will be Dr. Gotti Heider. He's an assistant professor of medicine, division of infectious disease, transplant ID program at University of Pittsburgh. He's the director of research in the bone marrow transplant hematological malignancy uh, and the ID program director, transplant ID fellowship, all at University of Pittsburgh. Dr. Heider, come on up. Thank you. Hi, everyone. Thanks uh, for having me. Um, so just just by way of interest, so yeah, I'm a I'm a, a transplant infectious disease physician at Pitt. So the only patient population I see are people who are either post transplant. Transplant is a broad word; it encompasses organ and stem cell, and also CAR T, and also people before that. So our group takes care of all hematological cancers essentially. So I want to start this by. Um, going over um, kind of the, the burden of uh, immunodeficiency in the U.S. and who's at highest risk for SARS-2 infection. So you'll see this number, uh, 3% of adults in this country are immunocompromised, and it ends up being about 7 million people. So not a trivial uh, a, um, proportion of adults, but not all immunodeficiencies are created equal. So we've stratified them here into kind of three different groups. Um, the ones on the left with the light blue is the, the immune system doesn't really work that well, but uh, probably not as immunocompromised as other individuals. Examples here include people with chronic lung conditions um, or people with uh, uncontrolled diabetes. But then as the shades get darker, you get more and more uh, um, immunocompromised. And so in the moderately immunocompromised group, that's where you start seeing uh, individuals with solid cancers getting getting chemotherapy, um, people on immunosuppressive treatments, and individuals with advanced HIV with T-cell counts less than 200, and individuals who are on dialysis. But lastly, and uh, what this conference and this talk is focusing on, is the severely immunocompromised uh, patients, which includes organ transplants, really advanced HIV, and then in red, all the patients that um, that this conference is about. So people with heme cancers, 
um, HCT recipients, people who are receiving treatments that get rid of their B cells, be it a CD20 MAB or a CD19 CAR and uh, things like that. Um, there. And, and so the first thing I want to start with is that it's, it's clear that people with heme cancers are at much higher risk of essentially all COVID-19 related outcomes than many other patient subgroups. So for instance, what we're showing you here is their risk for any infection. So they're more likely to get infected than individuals with solid tumors. You can see the uh, the hazard ratios here compared to people without any, any, any cancers. But, and importantly, the risk of developing any breakthrough SARS-2 infection is inversely proportional to the amount of vaccine that you received. So no vaccine is worse. One is better than no. Two is better than one. And three vaccines are better than zero. These are obviously older data. We're now in, I think a lot of these patients are now up to their seventh or eighth vaccine. Um, but in general, the more SARS-2 vaccines these individuals receive, the less likely they are to, uh, to acquire SARS-2. So um, it's not just infection, it's also hospitalization. And so what you're booking here is, is, um, is uh, the risk of hospitalization by whether or not patients have no cancer, solid cancer or heme cancer and the heme cancer we've highlighted in this uh, blue box and the risk of hospitalization after COVID-19 is much higher than people with solid tumors uh, and, 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 and people with no cancers. And it's not just the risk of hospitalization, it's also the risk of death. And so across these groups, people with heme cancers, when they develop COVID-19, they are much more likely to die than uh, individuals with solid tumors and individuals with uh, with no cancer. Now, the next few slides, I'm really just going to be showing you different iterations of these data just to really emphasize the point of how high risk people with heme cancers are for bad COVID-19 outcomes, and thus to emphasize the need to optimize how to prevent and also how to treat these uh, infections. So this is a massive study out of England where they, um, through their national health system database, they took uh, a random subset of 25% of people, which ended up being about 13 million individuals, and then looked at um, those who were 12 years of age or older, so, um, so about 11 billion people, and then looked at COVID-19 outcomes. And I want to highlight that even though um, only about 4%, so 3.9% on this graph, of these uh, patients were um, immunocompromised. They contributed to about a quarter of COVID hospitalizations, COVID ICU admissions, and COVID deaths. Meaning, even though the overall slice of the population pie, immunodeficient patients are um, only c constitute 4% of that, they constitute... Uh, about a quarter of all these bad ICU outcomes. Um, and here's a more more granular way of looking at these data from the same paper. And so over here, you're looking at the uh, uh, proportion of immunocompromised individuals who have been hospitalized for SARS-2, and they've 
divided them into kind of these broadly divined, uh, um, defined, defined criteria, and then they've divided them into different kinds of subgroups. And you can see that the risk of hospitalization of people with blood cancers who have, um, who have been undergoing treatment over the past five years is not trivial. I found it interesting, and this is, I think, the only paper I've seen where the risk seems to be lower than individuals with solid tumors. In reading this paper in detail, it seems as though these are really unadjusted and they don't account for things like age and comorbidities and and vaccination and things like that. So you might wonder. Uh, but nonetheless, the risk of hospitalization in people with uh, blood cancers is is not trivial. And then when you look at ICU admissions, it's actually the highest when you start slicing the pie into uh, the different categories of immunocompromised conditions. Um um, that uh, that were defined in this in the study, and then when you look at deaths, it's also quite high. Again, I, f- I found it unusual that it seems to be lower than individuals with solid tumors who are receiving active therapy over the past five years. There wasn't anything clear in the manuscript to explain what this discrepancy was, but nonetheless, this just sh- shows you that people with blood cancers are again very, very, very high risk for uh, for dying when they develop COVID-19. The other thing to mention about this paper is that it followed patients through December 2022, as in through the emergence of these XBB and BQ variants and things like that. And this is just a reminder that these individuals continue to experience bad COVID-19-related outcomes, even in the current era, when I think much of the population has dismissed these new variants as causing mild infection, which might be fair for everyone else, but for individuals like uh, who are immunocompromised, these XBB and BQ variants and things like that still lead them to be hospitalized, go to the ICU, and unfortunately die. So we need to try to optimize this. And uh, currently, really, the only ways to do that are to vaccinate and to mask. And everyone should be should be vaccinated. Uh, and Dr. Dr. Shoma, I believe, will go through the most current iteration of the CDC vaccine guidance. But it's not just the patient themselves; it's the cloud or the bubble that's around them. And so that's what we encourage: encourage the spouse and the kids and all of that to to get vaccinated. And then masking, which I realize is can be controversial, and the world has kind of moved on. But in my practice, but you know, the CDC and ASCO still recommend that immunodeficient people, including those with blood cancers, continue to mask. Um, and it's also a recommendation that I still give when I see these patients. I still tell them kind of common sense advice of. I know you want to get on with your life, but just remember that the virus in you is going to behave differently than it might in your spouse, for example. So please try to remember to wear a mask if you're out and seeing people. And I think in my experience, most patients get it, and I haven't really received any kind of pushback um, about this from them. But I'm but I'm curious what you guys' experience has been with it. Um, so I'm of mixed emotions about uh, max, uh, masking, uh, but... Uh... My emotions don't really matter. What matters is the uh, uh, is is the fact that a mask worn by a patient and a mask worn by their healthcare uh, provider it will reduce the chance of uh, that interaction leading to an infection. So, although 
when I go to the oncology unit where we have our most uh, delicate patients, I must mask uh, when I'm seeing those patients and I don't like it um, and I've had enough of the masking. Uh, again, my emotions don't matter. What matters is that it, uh, uh, it will make a difference, not a huge difference, but a difference. And, uh, and, and for that reason, I do it. Dr. Hopp? Yes. So uh, as Dr. Shohan said, we do require masks in our oncology center, both for patients and for healthcare providers. Um, and I do uh, recommend to my patients masking um, when they're out. I do encourage them to do things and live their life, but to mask and to be cautious and to be vaccinated and have their cloud vaccinated as well. And from a health system perspective, our our system a few months ago um, basically got rid of universal masking, except for the all the heme cancer wards and all the organ organ transplant wards, which all have big fancy signs and also masks up front when you enter the enter the unit. All right, so a quick segue into what SARS-CoV-2 does and what to expect about natural history of uh, of the infection. And uh, I'll I will walk you through this. So just look at the uh, at at the lines first. Um, if when the the red graph is the is is the viral load. So you start getting infected where my mouse is over here, and then the viral load kind of goes up 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 up. It peaks. You continue to shed for some duration, a week or two, and then eventually the virus goes away. While that happens, you begin to mount an antibody response. So the blackish, blue, and orange lines are all antibodies. Your spike IgGs might peak. You will neutralize the virus for some time. Your IgMs will go away. And this is, I think, standard for many, many different kinds of viral infections. Um, and then the course of the illness, if you're going to get really sick, it can will generally progress in a stepwise fashion. Uh, from asymptomatic through critical, and then some people unfortunately get long COVID. This applies to immunocompetent uh, people. And I think you'll hear more about this later, but uh, with immunocompromised individuals, some immunocompromised individuals, the ones who are severely, severely immunocompromised, this is where you'll see this red line of SARS-CoV-2 active viral shedding lasts for months, if not a year or longer. This is where the virus can evolve within, within the host. And this is where, despite months of active infection, these individuals simply never mount an antibody response. And, and I've seen this just anecdotally a lot in CAR-T-cell patients who, who have positive swabs for over a year, and it's the same virus evolving, evolving, and evolving. And so how to treat? Um, the general concepts are similar across immunocompetent and immunocompromised individuals. There's some fine print about immunocompromised individuals that, you're, that you'll hear about later, but we've divided this into, so the first one, two, three, four rows are direct acting anti, antivirals, um, which are remdesivir, uh, nermatrovir plus ritonavir or Paxlovid, molnupiravir and convalescent plasma. And um, remdesivir is indicated for people who are hospitalized. Um, and uh, all the others are generally, oh, uh, and 
the oral agents, so Paxlovid and Molnupiravir, are um, recommended for individuals with mild and outpatient disease. There are people looking into Paxlovid, for instance, for inpatient treatments. Uh, it does appear to be a potent antiviral, but not currently approved for that. And convalescent plasma does, or probably does, have a role in individuals with B-cell deficiencies, and there are data supporting its use in blood cancer patients, but there's lots of logistical and operational issues to consider there, including getting it in, in a timely fashion and making sure you have high titers and things like that. Um, Dr. Shom, do you want to expand a bit on, on, on CP? Sure. So uh, the concept behind convalescent plasma is that it's uh, uh, a, a passive immunotherapy um, similar to the monoclonal antibodies, except that uh, uh, convalescent plasma is produced by people that have re resolved the infection as opposed to produced in the laboratory. Uh, with the current technology and a current know-how, uh, the units that are available now are overwhelmingly going to be people that have had infection and been vaccinated, so the antibody levels are very high. Uh, however, uh, the uh, um, logistical hurdles to getting it to patients can be uh, uh, significant, particularly in places that haven't used a lot of it and don't have the system down. So it, it has a role uh, in the patients that can't make their own antibodies. But uh, if uh, a direct-acting antiviral is available, such as remdesivir or uh, Paxlovid, then uh, that's going to be uh, your go-to. Thanks. Um, and, um, and, and, and so with, and remdesivir, you know, works well to keep people out of the hospital if it started early and given within the first few days, but there's logistical considerations there because it's three consecutive days of an outpatient IV infusion, which can be difficult to do. And Paxlovid, as a reminder for everyone, has a, a ton of drug interactions because of the ritonavir component, which is a pharmacological booster. Um, it's a very, very, very potent uh, CYP3A4 inhibitor, lasts in your system for a while. And uh, just remember not to prescribe Paxlovid in a cavalier fashion. Make sure you know what other meds they're on. If they're on a calcineurin inhibitor, for example, for GVHD, and you prescribe Paxlovid without a CNI monitoring or interruption plan, the patient will develop toxic levels you know, press, AKI, and things like that. And remember, too, that it also takes a few days for the Paxlovid to wash out of your system. So those are some of the, some of the practical considerations there. Now, the lower three are the immunomodulatory agents, and these are given generally with, with more severe disease. Steroids should really only be prescribed in people who are on O2, but then you get into the IL-6 inhibitors like tocilizumab and, um, and the JAK inhibitors like, bar like baricitinib. And in general, the COVID treatment guidelines do recommend them for people who are actively deteriorating and with severe disease. Um, I personally worry a little bit about using them in a non-judicious fashion in severely, severely immunocompromised individuals. And I worry at times that it might exacerbate the infection if we think they have active infection or might put them at risk for OIs. But these cases are very challenging. And I try to be judicious, let's say, if I see a CAR T-cell patient with very severe COVID and 
And it's always a difficult decision about whether or not to give them TOSI. But I'm curious to see what you guys' approach is with these with drugs like TOSI for severe COVID in in this population. Yeah, I, I, I think that uh, the point that you make is that uh, using a baseball term, uh, these patients are often already standing on second or third base and adding uh, the steroids even, or tocilizumab, obaricitinib, or a combination of all, all of those just gets them closer to having a devastating super infection, uh, aspergillosis, or uh, other infections. So I, I worry about all that. If they need it, they need it. But uh, uh, it, it requires, uh, I think, a thoughtful decision-making, not just following a, a guideline. I was just yeah. going to say that usually it's a multidisciplinary yep. team-based consideration of all aspects of it, and there's not a one-size-fits-all. So it's a it's a collaboration between the hematologic malignancies physicians, the infectious disease team, and the pulmonary critical care team, and an individualized decision. All right. Now, going back into the issue of COVID-19 vaccine responses, and I did see a question in the chat about who's at risk for responding or not. So... Um, so the bottom line of this slide is that people with hematological cancers don't mount a, a decent antibody response to SARS-CoV-2 vaccines. And so the graph on the left is actually some work we've done where we um, followed a large cohort of, of immunocompromised individuals and measured spike IgG antibodies after two mRNA vaccine doses and then, and then after three, and just kind of looking at how the uh, antibody levels change. So on this graph, this solid line at the one is the distinction between an antibody positive, which is above it, or antibody negative, which is which is below it. And on the x-axis is the different type of immunocompromised group with HCW as a healthcare worker being the reference. So you'll see HIV, organ transplant, etc., and heme cancer highlighted over here. And what's in blue is the antibody level after the second dose. What's in orange is the antibody level after the third dose. And I think everyone can appreciate that basically all the orange graphs are kind of up. So the antibody levels kind of boost with everyone after they get dose three, which makes intuitive sense. But you will also appreciate that in the hematological cancer patients, still probably most of them fall under this um, this this line of zero of zero positive so they start low after dose two and even though they boost they they boost much um much less robustly than everyone else and the only other individuals who performed as poorly were organs were organ transplant recipients so you know and it's it's now known that people with blood cancers may not even mount an antibody response up to you know four five six vaccine uh doses this forest plot just shows you pooled, pooled study data and the, this nice little diamond in red below to the left of the line shows you that, um, again, people with blood cancers tend not to respond to uh, antibodies, uh, to uh, vaccines. There was a question that came through uh, regarding whether antibody titers should be checked after vaccination, uh, something we do in hepatitis B, for example. Yeah, this so this is a very controversial topic. Um, so the CDC, ASCO, NCCN, and the American Society of Transplantation and the FDA still to this day do not recommend for the routine measurement of of antibodies after vaccines in order to um, to to help with 
uh, with clinical decision making. And in my practice, I don't do it. And the reasons I don't do it are um, the actual titer you're going to get is going to vary by the assay you use. So Quest, LabCorp, or your home assay might, might the same uh, serum sample will give you a different titer. We don't know what the titers are that are that are uh, that are protective versus Hep B, where we actually do know this. Um, protection is actually a moving target that is going to vary by the predominant variant, and so a positive antibody and someone who received the original monovalent mRNA vaccine in 2021. Even if that level is, let's say, a million, it probably won't do anything against the current E variants, for example. And it's also a moving target. And so it becomes, is this going to be a binary decision? I'm checking your antibody today, and yes, you are good. Or do I have to keep checking over and over and over and over again and kind of see what the trend is? And so for now, I don't do it because of all these reasons. I, I know that some centers and some individuals do do it. I think that if there's a benefit, it might be in people who are seronegative persistently. And then you can just use that to counsel them that, hey, you really, really are at risk for SARS-2. Um, and we also mustn't forget about T-cell responses where there's some data to show that in some people, at least, there's discordance, meaning that they can mount a T-cell response without an antibody response. Um, Great. Thank you. Do I move on or? Uh, yeah, please. Move on. All right. All right. So masks. Um, this is just to reiterate what we had said before, that your know, masks will work. Um, um, if I'm wearing a mask and my patient with a CAR T cell is, is wearing a mask, and let's say I have COVID and I don't know about it, and the chances of giving them COVID are reduced if we're both wearing a mask. And, and, and this risk of uh, developing SARS-2 will vary by the kind of mask that you're actually wearing, with cloth being worse than surgical, being worse than, than N95 masks. Uh, but when I, when I counsel them, I don't, my stance is something is better than nothing. Uh, my th but uh, So I try not to be too dogmatic about the kind of mask. Is this you guys' approach? Yeah. Yeah, I've never told someone you have to wear an N95. I just say just please wear a mask, um, and I think most people I've seen just wear just wear a uh, surgical mask. Um, so we've you know we have vaccines which may not work that well. We have masks which you know work, uh, but we need to do better. But unfortunately, there's really nothing else at this stage. At some point, we had tuxedivimab and silgabimab, which was a monoclonal antibody for pre-exposure prophylaxis, not authorized anymore. And at some point, we had these two other MABs for post-exposure prophylaxis, but not available. And the reason none of these are available is because we had new variants emerged that uh, were resistant to them. But just as a reminder of what tixagitimab, so gavimab is or was, it's a SARS-CoV-2 um, um, monoclonal antibody that's, that, that binds to the spike protein. And between end of December or mid-December 2021 and end of January 2023, it was authorized in the U.S. for PrEP or pre-exposure prophylaxis of immunocompromised people against COVID-19. Um, it really wasn't meant to be a substitute for vaccination, but it was meant to, uh, to, to kind of help prevent SARS-2 in people who we think may not mount an antibody response. 
There were various dosing uh, changes, but ultimately the final dose was a total of 600 milligrams given IM. And, 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 uh, and it was a safe drug. There really were, uh, were, uh, were no issues with it. Now, this drug, though, was authorized based on a study called the PROVENT trial, which uh, was conducted, I think, before anyone knew anything about how poorly immunocompromised people would suffer from COVID-19. And so it enrolled largely immunocompetent people, but was then authorized for use in immunocompromised people. And so there's hundreds of uh, retrospective cohort cohort studies looking at its real-world effectiveness, that it does seem that while it was authorized and while the circulating variants were susceptible to it, it, it worked. It uh, prevented people from, uh, from getting COVID and it prevented people from dying. So this is a big study from Israel where they really only looked at immunocompromised individuals. You will see um, the ones who had CLL, the ones who had received an anti-CD20 in the past six months, which was almost 45% of few BMTs, few CAR-Ts, and then lots of lymphomas and, uh, and uh, myelomas. This first graph here shows you the risk of uh, breakthrough infection, and the second graph here shows you the risk of death from COVID-19, stratified by whether or not they got tocitumab and silgavimab. So the gray is the individuals who didn't receive it, and the black is the individuals who did receive it. The black uh, uh, lines are much lower, meaning that uh, ticks silgavimab really prevented breakthrough infection and prevented um, death while it was available. And there was another meta-analysis meta, um, that also showed that, yes, it was effective against breakthrough, effective against hospitalization, effective against ICU, and also uh, um, effective against mortality in about 92% of individuals. But it's, we don't have it anymore. And the reason is SARS-2 is a very plastic virus, evolves really quickly, and soon after um, tixitibimab, silgabimab was authorized, you have the emergence of novel variants. And so with this first graph, you, uh, you're looking at neutralization um, um, against BA4 or 5. And so what this group from Canada, I believe, did is that they got serum from individuals day zero and that before they received tixil, and then they uh, got serum again three weeks after receiving Tixil, and they looked at how well that these two sera can neutralize different variants. So with BA4 and 5 on day zero, you can, some people were, did have some, some uh, neutralizing activity. Perhaps they'd been, they'd been vaccinated before, but you can see that there's a ton of circles at the bottom, meaning that they had no activity. Then three weeks later, everything kind of moves up, meaning that after getting injected with Tixil, um, their serum now in, now inhibits the BA4 virus, which was dominant for some time last, uh, um, last year. But then when they did the same experiments looking at BQ1 in orange and XBB1.5 in greenish, you will see that, re that the graphs didn't really budge. They are the same, meaning that um, uh, Tixil didn't neutralize these two variants. And as soon as an, over 90% of the variants in the U.S. Um, were resistant to Tixil, the FDA revoked its uh, authorization. Um, but this is not the end because there's actually a next generation of it with a trial focused only on immunocompromised individuals that you'll hear about later. Um, but now I think there's a patient story. 
Hello everyone. Uh, my name is Hala Simi. I am a CLO patient, but I uh, also uh, am a facilitator for the patient and care partners support group in the state of Oregon and part of the uh, state of Washington. Additionally, I serve uh, on the board on the patient advisory board of uh, CLO Society, where we shape the patient's experience and advance uh, awareness of the chronic uh, lymphocytic leukemia. Uh, my uh, health journey started in 2007. Um, I noticed some bruises on my uh, body and I had a big lymph node in my neck. Uh, unfortunately, uh, my physicians dismissed the symptoms uh, till finally in 2009, a new doctor diagnosed me with uh, CLL, and I have been on uh, watch and wait uh, status ever since. I think the burden of COVID-19 prevention on immunocompromised uh, patients is significant. It's uh, affecting their uh, mental well-being, their daily activities, and overall quality of life. And you lose hope and you lose um, a sense of well-being, and it affects me and it affects your loved ones, the people around me. Um, my husband is constantly in fear that he goes out, maybe he, he's going to bring me something. I want to go see my kids, uh, but I can't travel much. And all of these things really make you isolated. I mean, when, what's life without... You know, seeing your loved ones, what's life without socializing, being with your friends. And I'm missing a lot of moments of that it cannot be repeated. Um, it's very important for immune-compromised um, patients to um, be proactive about um, COVID-19 prevention uh, because uh, if you're immunocompromised, you have you could have severe illness, uh, as I did a uh, couple of years ago. Um, the most important thing, even though we don't make enough immunity, is vaccination and keep up with the vaccination and booster shots. Okay, so Shmuel Shai, I'm a, a professor of medicine at Johns Hopkins, and uh, I will talk a little bit about uh, something old and something new. So we'll start with uh, the... Let me see if I can... Area. We'll start with the uh, ACIP, that's the uh, advisory body to the CDC, the recommendation for vaccination for immunocompromised patients. And uh, uh, there's probably very few people that are unvaccinated, but uh, in the uh, view of a hematologist or an infectious disease, somebody who's undergone CAR T cell therapy or somebody who's undergone uh, a uh, stem cell transplant, we will consider those people as unvaccinated and uh, therefore they should be revaccinated. And what does revaccination means? Uh, if you're using an mRNA vaccine, it's three doses, whether it's the uh, one by Moderna or the one by Pfizer. If you're using a subunit vaccine, which in this country is the Novavax, then that's a couple doses. And that's um, a uh, uh, somebody who is considered unvaccinated. And then for somebody who's been previously vaccinated, then if they've had uh, a, a dose of uh, the uh, mRNA vaccine, then they get a couple doses of uh, uh, the mRNA vaccine to catch up. If they've had a couple doses, then they get one. And then uh, if they've had uh, three or more doses, they still get another one uh, with the uh, boosting that we have, whether it's the Moderna or the uh, uh, Pfizer or the, the subunit. And uh, 
Uh, you do not need to memorize this slide, but it might be good to have it uh, handy. Uh, there are some caveats that I'll get into uh, uh, with these recommendations, and that's for some of the patients that you deal with every single day. So, for example, a patient that has received a stem cell transplant or CAR-T therapy, uh, then um, um, if they've received one or more doses of the vaccine prior to treatment, as I mentioned, they should be revaccinated uh, at, uh, at, at three months after transplantation. And I'll get into some data as to why we say three months should be fine. Uh, if a patient's received one or more doses of the COVID vaccine during treatment with a B-cell depleting therapy, uh, such as rituximab or something of that nature, they should be revaccinated about six months after completion of that therapy. Uh, uh, probably nine months would be even better immunologically speaking, but you have to try to balance the, uh, the, the wanting to get a vaccine product into a person uh, versus uh, uh, the perfect antibody response, sort of. You don't want the perfect to be the enemy of the good. So at six months is uh, going to be a, 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 a minimum of when you want to revaccinate them. And then if it's somebody that uh, is getting rituximab again and again and again, then, uh, well, you can't keep vaccinating them again and again and again with each rituximab therapy. So you choose sort of the, the next one that's coming up, uh, and then uh, uh, four weeks before that one, give them the vaccine. And now for a little bit of, uh, of science about uh, antibody responses. So picking up on what Dr. Heider mentioned, that the antibody responses are not ideal, in patients that uh, are uh, immunocompromised and getting vaccinated. Here is a study from 174 uh, allo uh, BMT patients that were vaccinated. Uh, some of them were vaccinated uh, uh, less than four months, and some of them were vaccinated four to 12 months after transplant. And 57% uh, of them, so not a tiny number, uh, most people did achieve a uh, antibody spike level at the end of the vaccination series. Uh, they received uh, uh, three vaccinations or sometimes even more. And as you can see, uh, progressing, uh, the um, uh, antibody level initially, what it, for those that got vaccinated uh, uh, within uh, uh, four months of transplantation and those that got vaccinated at four to 12 months after transplantation, initially the levels were better in the, uh, the later transplant people, the later vaccination uh, period, uh, sorry, take that, the earlier vaccination, but that number caught up pretty soon. And then there was no difference in antibody level, uh, mean antibody level, whether they got the vaccine early after transplant or at four to 12 months after transplant. Uh, so from that, I'll say that vaccine timing, um, three months after bone marrow transplant, unless there's something uh, really dramatic going on with their immunosuppression if they're getting antithymocyglobulin or rituximab or some massive immunosuppression uh, three months after transplant should be a fine time to vaccinate them. And uh, whether they've had uh, a prior GVHD or immunosuppressive uh, antibodies uh, and immunosuppressive medications or not doesn't seem to have a huge impact in this study on the uh, on the antibody titers. So with all the limitations of what antibody titers mean, uh, the bottom line is uh, data support vaccination three months post-transplant. Uh, here's a, uh, a patient example, a 65-year-old woman with CLL, hypogamma globulinemia, received the full COVID vaccination series plus several boosters 
still masks in public, avoids crowds when possible. And uh, as the world returned to normal, she's finding it difficult. Uh, everybody sort of moved on, but uh, she uh, um, doesn't like to be in crowds, but can't avoid it altogether, can't always mask, and she's worried about getting COVID. This is, uh, I think, a lot of your patients are like that. Um, so back in the day, a couple of years ago, we had something that uh, we could easily give her to help things. And one of my cousins is actually uh, a recipient of, of this, which is uh, uh, a uh, monoclonal antibody for prevention uh, of uh, infection. And uh, picking up on what Dr. Heider was saying, multiple uh, studies put together, uh, you can see that the overall effectiveness for preventing corona infection, uh, coronavirus infection, and that is anything from sniffles to being in the ICU, was about 40%. But uh, when you look at the uh, prevention of hospitalization, then uh, you get up into the uh, uh, closer to 60 to 80%. So putting that all together, the stuff was working uh, when it was effective. But as, as we know, the um, uh, virus uh, mutated on us and the uh, monoclonal was no longer uh, working. This is a study from uh, Israel, uh, sort of a complementary study to the study that Dr. Heider was mentioning, where, uh, again, they looked retrospectively at the risk for infection in immunocompromised patients, and this was a diverse group of immunocompromised patients, uh, and uh, you can see that there is a split in the patients that had the control versus patients that uh, uh, got, uh, and you can see that there was a difference. When they looked at the subgroup of patients that uh, uh, had an, an impact, so overall impact, uh, there was an impact. When you looked at the subgroup, it was interesting in that the patients that had malignancy in the prior year, actually, it didn't have an impact in terms of preventing infection altogether. Um, again, sniffles all the way to ICU care. When you homed in on uh, hospitalization, again, a difference between uh, risk of hospitalization, uh, getting the Evusheld versus uh, the control. Uh, they, in their analysis, and I went through this study up and down, they didn't actually include onc uh, oncology patients uh, in their subgroup analysis. Uh, they, uh, so I don't know if in that subgroup, it's probably that they didn't have enough patients to really home in on subgroup of patients that had both cancer in the past year and required hospitalization, whether they got Evusheld or not. But again, the whole group, there was a, uh, a decline. So putting this plus all the other stuff that we know about uh, Evusheld, I think when it was available, it worked. wasn't uh, a, uh, a, a, a perfect shield, but it did provide some uh, protection. And what this study showed is looking at the homing in on patients with B-cell malignancies that were received Evusheld, and uh, they had a lower risk of, uh, of infection. And uh, here we're uh, in a group uh, 224 did not get infection, 27 did get infection. Uh, in this subgroup where they were trying to look at, did, did they need the 300 and 300 versus the 150 and 150 doses? And I don't think they had enough number to really make this call. So they didn't see a difference, but I don't, I don't think they were powered to show a difference regardless. Uh, of it, So I think I'm still going to go with the 300, 300 tolerable and lots of antibody to uh, provide protection um, when this stuff was working. But uh, we now know stopped working. Another approach, which is uh, not what we used at our hospital, listening to Dr. Hyder, not what's used at Pitt, was to check antibody level. If their antibody level was uh, low, 
then either give them Evusheld, uh, uh I mean, give them Evusheld and, uh, um, f- and and see if you can prevent it. Uh, if their antibody level was high, then um, uh, monitor them alone, saying, okay, well, you don't need to give them additional antibody. They already have their own antibody, uh, with all the caveats that we don't really know what the uh, magic number of antibody is to provide protection. And in that particular study, they didn't have a difference in outcome from the two different approaches. Uh, uh, we have not used this approach. I present it to you because I think it's an interesting uh, 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 strategy, but uh, it, it's uh, we didn't use approach. This is something from our center that my colleagues, uh, uh, Dr. Karaba and, and others, uh, showed uh, from solid organ transplant patients. So not exactly applicable, perhaps, but what was interesting was that the uh, uh, level of antibody that uh, that the patients had that was able to uh, cause uh, inhibition of the virus using a, a system called ACE2 inhibition percentage, uh, when they looked at the ancestral, the original COVID, great protection uh, for many months, but as the virus uh, mutated to more advanced uh, uh, viral subtypes, such as Omicron BA5, the efficacy waned um, so that uh, maybe a six-month vaccination, uh, 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 Evusheld therapy, uh, Evusheld was given at month one and then again at month six, but it looked like uh, the activity for some of the Omicrons had waned so that perhaps uh, giving it more frequently would have been more effective. It's just something to keep in the back of our mind as we look at new products, whether the every six months is going to be enough or whether they'll it'll need to be given a little bit more frequently. So where are we today? If you go to the NIH guidelines today, the panel recommends against anything for pre-exposure prophylaxis whether it's Evusheld or hydroxychloroquine or chloroquine or ivermectin or vitamin D or anything, uh, they don't recommend it. That's not to say that if somebody needs vitamin D for other reasons, you shouldn't give it to them. Uh, but uh, it, 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 there's, there's no, um, no recommendation for uh, anything for pre-exposure prophylaxis right now. However, there are some emerging antiviral agents, and, and at the top of that list is AZD3152, uh, for pre-exposure prophylaxis, it's a monoclonal antibody uh, that uh, I'll talk about uh, a little bit uh, later. It's uh, now in, in phase three studies. Uh, there's another monoclonal antibody that is uh, VYD222 that's in uh, phase three study, both for pre-exposure prophylaxis and post-exposure prophylaxis, and a series of other drugs in development. Uh, one of the more interesting ones in my mind is... Uh, VV116, which is uh, takes remdesivir and has done a little bit of modification to it so that it can be taken by mouth instead of by IV, uh, paper in New England Journal of Medicine describing that. Uh, so uh, I think uh, uh, there'll be some new products hopefully coming soon uh, for prevention and for treatment. Just a couple of questions that have come through. So um, uh, one of these questions is, is in the prior monoclonal antibody rollout, patients with CLL on a watch and wait were not considered eligible for monoclonal antibody prevention. Will this change with the next generation monoclonal antibody rollout? I, I hope so, and I hope it, it depends on uh, the 
the, the, the patient uh, type and that uh, if you have somebody with uh, CLL that particularly is hypogammaglobulinemic, I would love to give that person something because I'm going to give them the antibody, the uh, vaccine, and they're probably not going to get a great response. On the other hand, uh, it, 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 if it's somebody that uh, is much more immunologically robust, then maybe less critical. Yeah, and I'll just add to that that can people yeah, and I'll just add to that that um, so the, the the these individuals were actually eligible. Um, the the EUA in the U.S. included a wide spectrum of immunodeficiencies and was a little open to in- interpretation, which really helped. So so people with CLL were eligible, but I think it depends on your institution and supply and protocols and things like that. I'll tell you at our site. When we initially, and you think you'll hear more about this uh, by Dr. Huff, but we initially restricted Evusheld when supply was really low to a quote-unquote highest risk people. So that would be a, a recent uh, CAR-T, a recent stem cell transplant, or a recent uh, lung transplant and things like that for about two months. So then after that, we started opening it to all others. But at our center, people with CLL on observation were definitely eligible and received Evusheld. And I would just say, um, I think this this question illustrates the challenge of what was present and hopefully won't be present in the next generation, which is this variability across um, across the country, across centers, which was largely, I believe, due to supply and availability, um, uh, but this interpretation of these aspects. And so there were certainly places that... Uh, had greater availability and greater ability to administer it um, and other places where that was more difficult. I know there was also a question earlier about access in rural communities, and, and I'll hit, I'll touch on that a little bit in the next section as well. Great. Thanks. Uh, so moving on to uh, the one of the new drugs that uh, is in development, AZD3152. Um, it's the next generation of Evusheld, uh, but instead of two monoclonals, it, it is one monoclonal. It's was derived from B cells of patients that had uh, COVID and convalesced from it. And then uh, this particular antibody was derived from it, as were all the other monoclonals that we used. Those were uh, antibodies that were derived from patients that had uh, improved. Six months protection is expected. Um, and, uh, and there's a, uh, this is the, uh, what the antibody looks like. And, uh, this little area, this little island here, uh, binds to the ACE2 binding site uh, uh, of of the um, of the virus. Uh, so hopefully, that's where it binds. Um, when the person gets the monoclonal antibody injection, it's in their system for weeks and months. They encounter the uh, the virus before the virus has a chance to really cause a lot of damage. This monoclonal binds to the ACE2 binding site, yeah, impairing the interaction between the virus and the um, um, and, and the epithelial cells, the respiratory epithelial cells, and the patient then does not get infection, or if they get infection, it's not as severe. Uh, how long does it stay in the system? This is a uh, uh, poster from um, uh, ID Week uh, uh, in October, and initially when you get uh, the injection, then you get very high levels, and then they start uh, going lower. And uh, you'll see the blue is uh, what was um, one of the active ingredients in Evusheld, and the orange is the active ingredient in this um, 
medication. Uh, they gave it IV and IM, but it looks like it, it's not a huge difference in terms of uh, uh, drug levels. But the point is um, that uh, it, it starts waning. And uh, will an every six-month regimen be effective? Um, I, I think the study is ongoing now. Uh, will we learn post-marketing that maybe it needs to be given more frequently to be seen? At this point, the target is that uh, at six months, you're still expected to have enough antibody that's effective against the circulating variants. Uh, whether the variants will then change, um, meaning that this, the stickiness of the antibody isn't as good, the fit isn't as good, and maybe um, you need higher antibody levels and therefore more frequent uh, dosing, that's to be determined. But the information that we have right now is that we think that every six months should be okay. Um, a little bit more about this product here. It was given to uh, animals. So it is uh, protective in actual animal models. In terms of in vitro, how active it, is it? Uh, it looks like if you have uh, high antibody levels of it, uh, which you should expect with um, uh, the uh, dosing that's now recommended, that it will be active against all of these various variants. So uh, good activity against the variants that are out there. But there is one troubling variant here, which is very uncommon right now, but it is it, it is a small but not zero percentage of the viruses that are out there where uh, the um, dose, uh, the, the IC50, which is sort of... Uh, how effective the killing is, the lower the number, the better, uh, is pretty high for this one. So it, it, it's not, um, it's not going to protect against all the variants out there. And, uh, I, I think if XBB 1.5 with the F456L mutation becomes dominant, then, It'll tell the same. We'll be telling the same story that we've told about other monoclonal antibodies for viruses, uh, in in that uh, resistance develops. We don't know that that's going to happen. We hope and pray that it doesn't. But uh, I don't want to tell you that this is going to be good forever because it might not. Uh, there is a trial that's ongoing right now. A uh, it's called the Supernova trial. It's a uh, phase one to three trial. The phase two is the one I'm going to focus on. Uh, the goal is to establish safety and efficacy of intramuscular AZD3152. Um, it was uh, it's being given at one to one um, placebo versus um, uh, uh, versus uh, uh, the drug. Initially, uh, patients some of the patients received uh, uh, didn't receive placebo. Received uh, Evusheld, which essentially is placebo because it's not active against. The circulating variants, but then at some point it was decided, okay, we're just going to change it to placebo. Why give you Evusheld when we can give you placebo since the Evusheld isn't going to do anything? Uh, it's given at one month and six months. Primary endpoint is safety and neutralizing activity of a single IM shot. So whereas Evusheld was two shots of 300, this is just one shot. That's another reason why the comparator was switched to placebo is that patients need are getting fewer shots. Uh, they don't need to get the two shots. And uh, we're waiting on the results of those. I don't have uh, a result slide on that. Uh, we were hoping that uh, by the time this conference came, we'd have some results sli slides to show you 
that uh, it's safe or not, effective or not, but not quite there yet. So where are we today uh, for prevention? Uh, it, it's still vaccination. It's still um, uh, non-pharmacological intervention. And then when the patients have infections, then we treat them with the uh, approach that Dr. Hayter spoke about. Um, one thing that he did not speak about, but he touched on a little bit, and I'll dive in a little bit further, is the concept of protracted uh, COVID. So uh, these are patients, I'm sure some of you have seen these patients where they develop COVID and then they're stuck in sort of COVID jail. They can't clear their virus. Some of them get sicker than others. Uh, some of them are get admitted to the hospital a few times, maybe touch the ICU and then come out and they just can't not clear the virus, cannot get back to their life. Uh, who are these patients? They're more likely to be lymphoma patients, some myeloma patients, some transplant patients, uh, uh, CAR-T patients, and uh, patients that have gotten rituximab. I've found that that's um, oftentimes rituximab is somehow in the mix as well with uh, these type of patients. Um, there's some diagnostic criteria that my colleague, uh, Dr. Diaverdi, uh, uh, and uh, my colleague, Dr. Hader, uh, established, uh, um, and um, uh, you can see them here. Uh, and um, that you may encounter some of these patients with uh, protracted COVID. And there was a question. I mean, maybe you could you can speculate. You know, with with these new variants being the Achilles heel of many of the monoclonals, do you think it's it's a sustainable approach? to try a new monoclonal every year? Is your sense that this might turn into something like the flu shot where you don't have to launch these massive trials every single time? What is what is your sense about all this? Yeah, so I think, I think uh, monoclonals, so I'm going to take a step back in that there's been three ages of infectious diseases uh, in the antibiotic era. There was the passive immunotherapy era, which came initially uh, and uh, where, where uh, uh, people were uh, injecting animals with um, uh, microbes and then generating antibodies and then giving it to people uh, and uh, where people were taking convalescent serum or convalescent plasma. Uh, that became uh, inconvenient when the small molecules, penicillin, sulfa, and others came, which blew it out of the water. And then when we've come to the third age where we realize that there's some conditions where there isn't a small molecule available, uh, and then, so we go back to passive immunotherapy with monoclonal antibodies or with uh, uh, polyclonal antibodies. But uh, what we've learned with the monoclonals with the third age is that variants do happen, and uh, particularly for viruses that I'll call sloppy RNA viruses that uh, uh, are just mutating all the time and uh, are, are changing themselves so that uh, you develop a monoclonal. It's not like a monoclonal against CD20, which is just going to be stable forever. It's a monoclonal against a changing target. Um, yeah, I think so. I think it depends on how important that target is to the uh, to the virus. If it's a target that it can't do without, then I think the antibody is going to be more uh, long acting. If it's an antibody that the virus is just very happy to mutate and, and go along, then we are going to need new uh, antibodies. Uh, one of the questions that I don't think is answered is: Do treatment with monoclonal antibodies um, are they? acting in parallel with mutation? Is the mutation happening because of the interaction with the virus and an immune system? 
or is there interaction happening in people that have gotten the monoclonal and it's becoming resistant to that monoclonal and then taking over? I tend to think that it's more the former than the latter because some of the a lot of the mutations are occurring in places where they're not using a lot of it, monoclonal antibodies. But I will say that they're actually, we don't know where those mutations are happening. We know that they're detecting them in South Africa, but did they happen maybe in a place where they were giving a lot of monoclonals? And then because of the excellent virology labs in South Africa, that's where they detected them. Unknown. Um, so I, th- I think the short answer to your longer, to your long question is I, I am worried about the durability of monoclonal antibodies against the sloppy virus. Um, just uh, finishing a little bit about uh, the issue of protracted uh, COVID. Um, so we're going to enter here a data-free zone uh, and and how to treat those. But uh, uh, here are some of the things that we've done. Is we've given uh, Paxlovid, uh, which is ritonavir-boosted nirmatrelivir, for longer than the five days. We've given remdesivir for much longer than the five days, 10 days or even longer We've done mix and match where we, uh, when we had monoclonal antibodies that were effective for treatment, we used those plus a, a small molecule like remdesivir or uh, Paxlovid, or we used convalescent plasma plus those. Or I, I've seen dozens of paper out there, single case reports of places where they're using, say, remdesivir plus uh, Paxlovid. So mix and match. I, I, I think that if you have somebody who's sort of caught in this viral uh, prison, then you want to give an antiviral. And uh, so a combination antiviral sounds like a good idea to me. Would you just comment, I, I know the perspective, but would you just comment on uh, where you would use molnupiravir uh, versus Paxlovid? Uh, so where I would use, what was the first part? Molnupiravir. Uh, so molnupiravir is another small uh, molecule uh, antiviral, and uh, it doesn't have a great track record in terms of the clinical trials. Um, and it also is mutagenic, which uh, uh, maybe with all the other stuff that these patients are getting, that's not the biggest concern that it's mutagenic, but it's a concern. Uh, so I tend not to want to use it as my first line. And if I have an option, I'd use Paxlovid over it. However, Paxlovid has ritonavir in it. And uh, uh, sometimes you feel like you need a PhD in pharmacology to figure out all the drug interactions between ritonavir and some of the other drugs that the patients are getting. But the preference would be Paxlovid or remdesivir as your frontline therapy. And by far. By far. By far. All right. Patient story. Okay. In December 2021, um, I had COVID in January 22. I, uh, they admitted me to hospital and I had a really difficult time. Therefore, when I came uh, out of the hospital, I started searching into preventative cares for uh, and other medications that could help me with um, preventing COVID. Um, I came across the monoclonal antibody and uh, unfortunately, when I went to my primary care physicians, he didn't know anything about it. And I had to even spell the medication for him. He gave me a prescription and I took it to the pharmacy and they laughed at me. They said, this medication is not available like this. You have to go through your oncologist. He's the only one who could help you. I went to my oncologist and I asked for it. And he said that his hands are tied. He cannot prescribe the medication for me. It's on a waiting list. It's such a 
a high demand and um, low supply. Um, I was not inside that pool because at that time, uh, CLL patients were not uh, considered immunocompromised or priority enough. And especially somebody like me that has um, been on uh, watch and wait status. Finally, the pressure on um, all these physicians and oncologists, which they knew that some of these patients, they need this medicine. Um, they found a clinic in um, Salem, Oregon. I live in Portland, Oregon, but they found a clinic in Salem, Oregon, a small clinic uh, that could um, give uh, the extra doses they had to their patients. And they put my name uh, in the list in January 22. Um, finally, by uh, June, I, um, they called me six months later uh, to receive their injections. So I waited till uh, June uh, 22, and I had my first, I had to drive uh, two hours to Salem, Oregon, and I received the uh, injections, and um, it was it was wonderful because it gave me a sense of uh, relief um, that um, now I have an extra layer of protection, and it gave me hope because it reduced the risk after I got the um, injections, I was able to attend two weddings, which was the best thing happened to me after being isolated for so long, after being lonely and um, fearful, I was able to see many family and friends. And I went in um, January and I had uh, my second dose of uh, monoclonal antibody injections in the same clinic. And uh, I was able to take my daughter to Europe and Italy. I promised her to do that when she graduated in 2020. But uh, finally, this happened, and it was the best trip of my life. Wow. Dr. Huff, come on up. All right. So uh, so thanks very much. Um, so I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, the tactics for trying to improve um, our ability to administer these therapies to our patients. Um, and I think um, many of you in this room have probably experienced the challenges, the limited capacity uh, that we found in some states versus other states having a greater surplus. We've heard from our patient who had to wait six months uh, to receive her Evusheld. Um, the system is complicated. Um, these were um, allocated by the federal government. Um, and given to states on a monthly basis. Um, and then institutions had to figure out how to roll these out. Um, and lots of meetings and lots of discussions as to prioritizations. And um, they weren't, the criteria weren't the same around the country. I mean, there was people who were eligible, but not every institution had the ability to allow all of the eligible patients uh, to receive this. Um, there was also lack of um, patient and clinician awareness, uh, both of the agents, but also how to access these agents, um, both um, uh, due to locality, due to uh, socioeconomic status, and due to um, lack of access to uh, technology. Um, and I will show you that there is actually um, data uh, that really there was uh, continued disparities in patients being able to receive and access these therapies both preventatively and therapeutically uh, for patients uh, with COVID-19 receiving these antibody-based approaches. Um, and so looking at the studies of allocation of these resources, um, Black patients were about a quarter, uh, a quarter le or 25% less likely to receive 
um, monoclonal antibody and anti-COVID therapies than white patients. Asians were about 50% less likely than white patients um, to receive uh, these therapies and other races, uh, 46%. And, and there are a multitude of reasons behind this, um, but clearly these disparities were present. If you ask patients, and I'm sure many of you in this room uh, could uh, certainly uh, attest to these statements that people have said, you know, um, they want us uh, to keep, keep them up to date, to keep trying to find strategies for them to help prevent these infections, make these medications available to them, help them understand the risks and the benefits of these therapies, um, and make it easier, uh, not just for COVID therapies, but for lots of things that we do for our patients to make it easier for them to access these things. Um, and so the question being, which patients are candidates for these next generation uh, preventative agents? Um, uh, we believe that similar to patients who are eligible for the older agents, but hopefully this will expand and the availability of these agents will expand and that we'll be able to give them uh, much more broadly. And I'm, I, I sincerely hope um, that, that that's the case. I believe that's the case as these will um, be generated by the pharmaceutical industry and hopefully di uh, disseminated in that manner rather than a limited supply that we that we had previously. Um, but again, with all the caveats of um, continued mutations and evolution of the virus and the efficacy of these, but but just being able to give these to our patients. Um, and the the list of immunocompromised patients is here. I think we all recognize um, uh, clearly that patients with hematologic malignancies, um, B-cell-directed therapies, uh, and the strategies for treating these are some of the most immunocompromised patients, uh, certainly here, solid organ transplant patients as well um, uh, in all the graphs that you've seen are the ones that uh, have the most, uh, the highest risk and the lowest likelihood of responding to our other strategies. So uh, these will likely be the patients who will be eligible for these next-generation preventative agents. Um, there are many resources out there, but, but this one in particular is to really communicate with patients about their immunocompromised status and their need for extra protection. So the CDC uh, websites have quite a bit of information on guidance for planning, prevention, um, testing, and exposure and treatment uh, for patients that are immunocompromised. Um, and really making plans ahead of time uh, with patients. So um, as, as time has passed um, and people have overall done better, we still have our patients that are getting severely ill uh, in the setting of COVID infections. And so trying to make sure that patients have access to the information that they can help protect themselves and know when COVID um, uh, is rising cases in their area using these tools that are available. Um, so... Um, one of the questions that was actually asked um, through the, the question and answer was, how what how do you help reluctant patients? And so um, this is a patient, Colin, who's a 62-year-old gentleman with myeloma who had a bone marrow transplant two months ago, um, had preceded by four months of chemotherapy. Um, and you're trying to educate him and give him guidance. And he is somewhat hesitant about, he understands our concerns but he's somewhat hesitant about COVID-19 prevention. Um, and so some of the strategies that, that I've employed is really to try to understand and listen as to why he might be hesitant, 
um, and try to provide information um, and counter any misinformation that might be available. You've heard from Dr. Shoham um, and Dr. Hyder about the safe the safety of these um, uh, treatments, at least the ones that we've had to date, um, with really minimal side effects and benefits that we've seen, reduction in uh, hospitalizations, reduction in death associated with it, and so really trying to educate our patients. Someone who's only two months out from a transplant would not be eligible yet for immunizations because, remember, we would start those at three months post-transplant. So if we were to have a COVID-19 prevention strategy and therapy to offer, this would be a patient uh, that we would certainly want uh, to do so. And so um, many times in uh, patients such as this, it is ongoing discussions. It's not one visit, um, and it's a topic that you can continue to readdress and I have had success with patients like this that with continued information um, provided in an open and um, uh, collegial and discussion way, uh, moving the needle and getting patients to be accepting of that. So um, it's also helpful to have all of the staff understanding because many times patients are more open in speaking with the nursing team or our pharmacy team than perhaps physicians. And so having everyone be able to educate our patients is is very helpful. Um I think one of the important lessons um, and that really is we need to ensure there is access to these emerging agents for all patients. Um, and um, there are some tools available. Uh, there is the therapeutics locator that is actually up to date if you haven't gone to it. Um, I actually still look at it when I'm trying to identify therapies. Um, Paxlovid is now largely commercial, but you can still find the pharmacies that have it and what they have on hand. So at the website that's listed here, and you, I believe you have this in the, the tools on your iPad as well too, and you'll have access to all the slides. But it is a great resource to go to, and as more therapeutics get added, they'll be added as well. But we really need the ability to reach out to our patients, so team members who can call patients and inform them when we have these therapies available of their eligibility utilizing the electronic health records to identify patients and push messages out, send video education to them, and then having referral pathways. And I sincerely hope uh, we actually had in our area even some pharmacies that would administer Evusheld to patients. So I really hope that urgent cares and pharmacies and other places will be able to do these. Um, certainly oncology centers are robust in their ability to administer these. But we had a whole lot in our institution of immunocompromised patients with underlying rheumatologic conditions or otherwise without access to um, infusion sites, injection sites, or otherwise. And that's both for prophylaxis, but also for therapeutic uh, administration of remdesivir now, monoclonal antibodies previously. Certainly when patients are in the hospital, uh, strategies to get patients vaccinated as long as it's medically appropriate while they're in the hospital if they haven't been vaccinated is a great opportunity uh, as they're a captive audience and on the way out, uh, again, as long as it's medically appropriate to do so, are some of our ways of trying to enhance the uh, immunity for patients. I just want to ask you a question that you and I were just discussing, and it's about it's a bit off topic here, but uh, do you know if current batches of IVIG have useful titers against COVID? Yeah, that's a great question. So in, in collaboration with our immunology team, given the high prevalence um, of vaccinations and infections around uh, the, the world, uh, they do believe that the current supply of IVIG and gamma globulin supplementation does have 
therapeutic antibodies um, or, or high titers of antibodies, I should say, against variants that have been present. Now, as new variants emerge, it's going to take time for those antibodies to be present, um, but that, that, that that is present um, in that and provides a passive immunity to patients who are hypogamic globulinemic getting supplements. Great question. All right. So um, again, this is just a picture of what the, the website is of the COVID-19 treatment uh, locator. And you can, there's a box up here um, if for those of you who haven't seen it, where you can type in an address or a zip code, and it will then zoom you down into the area and show you exactly what's available at the pharmacies and uh, area, um, uh, locations in the area so you can help prescribe for patients. Okay. So if we go back to our patient... At the same time, it's always uh, back of your mind that you have to be cautious. You cannot uh, um, let go of uh, masks, hand sanitizers, uh, social distancing. Still, you have to practice all of these things because what if uh, this um, what if this medication is not hundred uh, percent protecting you, which which is not, and also the virus is uh, constantly evolving. My hope is that uh, there are new uh, measures and new medications are being um, researched for the new variant of the COVID-19. At this point, that uh, previous um, uh, agents are not uh, effective anymore. Uh, I definitely would... Um, get the next uh, generations of these medications, but I'm sure I will face the same difficulty as before. Uh, healthcare system should prioritize these uh, um, patients to receive the vaccination and provide essential protection. I think the healthcare providers, they should advocate more um, to uh, help these people um, fight this disease and have access to proper care and uh, proper vaccination and medication. In conclusion, in 2023, what we have available are vaccines that really can help the limit of progression of disease, um, but they're not durable. Um, and so we need to continue giving uh, boosters and, and the schedule that Dr. Shoham has outlined. Um, we, yet, we currently do not have available monoclonal antibodies to prevent or treat COVID-19 other than perhaps convalescent plasma, but we don't have monoclonal antibodies that are available. We do have antiviral drugs. Um, the caveats of the, the drug interactions with Paxlovid, but Paxlovid and remdesivir being the preferred um, th uh, antiviral therapies that we have available. Um, we have to improve our vaccine strategies. We have to develop really and ensure the availability of testing and the ability to get these therapies into our patients who are most vulnerable and most at risk. Um, continue to educate our patients and our healthcare providers um, and ensure that we have access to these therapies once they are available. I think, so I just would, we'll, we'll take questions in just a second, but um, thank you to all of our partners, in particular the CLL Society um, uh, for whom they connected us with our patient um, uh, case today and our patient advocates. 
Um, uh, this is their website. There's information outside um, as well, too. Uh, there are handouts and action plans uh, for patients to help them prepare ahead of time, um, checklists for their risk, check uh, information on how to quarantine um, and what to do uh, once someone tests positive. So with that, we will pause and take some questions. Um, feel free to type them in the chat um, and uh, it's... go ahead. Terrific. Thank you, both of you. Um, one of the questions that came up is, is it the number of vaccine doses or the duration since the last vaccine that makes the difference? And I'm going to maybe start by answering that it's a combination of all those. So the the number of vaccines does matter in terms of getting you a baseline immunity. And then if the last time that uh, the patient received the vaccine was before the newest uh, vaccine became available, then they're probably not as protected as they could be. Um, and it, it, it's hard to know what the future will bring, but it's likely that we're going to have uh, uh, additional vaccines as the virus continues to mutate, maybe once a year, maybe once every several years. So I think it will make a difference uh, once you've reached the baseline level of vaccination as to how long it's been since the last vaccine. Um, th this is a question. Uh, how will the type of chemotherapy, immunosuppressive medications, and whether or not the patient had a bone marrow transplant affect the effectiveness of the monoclonal antibody prevention drugs? Well, I don't think that the type of chemotherapy, bone marrow transplant, or others will affect the effectiveness of the monoclonal antibody prevention. I think it will impact those eligibility criteria, but I don't think it'll affect the it'll impact the effectiveness of them. Yeah, I, I, I would agree with the one caveat that a person that uh, uh, has some protection of their own, um, and then you layer on top of that the uh, monoclonal antibody. I'm speculating, although this is speculation, that they might be more protected than somebody who doesn't have protection of their own. But that's just speculation. Well, fair enough. Um, they might have greater protection. I was looking at it in a deleterious way. So. <laughs> um, how to improve access to COVID-19 prevention in urban versus rural setting? Maybe, uh, Gotti, because uh, you're in Pennsylvania, which uh, uh, has quite a bit of a rural setting. I was peripherally involved in some of the discussions of the uh, have you shall roll out because of because of the transplant ID uh, hat that I that I have and I know that our health system really tried to make an effort to ensure that it's not just people at our flagship academic center in Pittsburgh itself who had access to it but also that people in community hospitals at a rural areas also had access to Evdushov. So when we were discussing how to roll this out, yes, we had outpatient infusion places on main campus, which is in the city, but we also had outpatient Evdushov um, infusion s s centers across the state under UPMC, which I think helped access it. But it was, I mean, it was hard. Then This was hard to to do, I think it takes a lot of people to agree and to launch the resources needed to to do something like this. But I'm curious what your experience was. No, no, we did the same thing similarly. It it took a, a very large village to to put all of these in place. But I can tell you that that 
um, while we were able to reach people in community sites at our health system, there were people who were treated in community practices that did not have the same ability to access these things. And that's why, you know, I, I, I step back and I look at how well we've done with employing retail pharmacies to deliver vaccines. And I really think that that and or urgent care centers is a strategy that needs to be looked to for these therapies so that more people have access to them. Because I don't know about your center, but our center, you know, had these therapies available for established patients. We didn't establish new patients in our health system. I'm not saying we wouldn't establish a new patient, but somebody who just called to get one of these therapies, if they weren't an established patient, they had no avenue to go to. And so I think we have to think more broadly I think our networks can help, but I think we have to get even further into the community. I do recall in the early days of Evusheld, we there were some patients reaching out to us directly from other sites in either Pennsylvania or neighboring states saying, oh, my doctor hasn't heard of this. My health center isn't doing it. I heard you guys are. So we actually, this was just a handful of times that we created, you know, a patient record for them in Epic and they came and they got it and they, and they went back home. But this was maybe three or four times. Thanks. Uh, given the information discovered about COVID vac- virus vaccination, has anyone looked at responses to other vaccination and post-treatment settings like flu, pertussis, tetanus, et cetera? And, and uh, do you want to take that? I mean, yes, those vaccine responses. And, you know, one of the challenges, um, I would say, is that overall responses um, to flu vaccines are actually lower than the overall response rates, perhaps to COVID vaccines. Um, But we still recommend them and we still advocate that people get them because we want to do our very best to protect people. So um, they have been looked at, um, but, um, you know, I think it's the same strategies. And so I will say that, you know, our immunology team for patients who are receiving gamma globulin supplementation actually does not advocate immunizing those patients because if they don't have functioning B cells, then they do not recommend uh, immunizing. Do recommend flu shots, do recommend the COVID vaccine, but not perhaps all of the Prevnar vaccines and and the others. Another question is, um, if it takes five to six vaccines to mount a robust response, how often should we counsel blood cancer patients to get boosted again and does their response last shorter? This is an amazing question. Um, so, and 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 I don't think it has an easy answer. And I've I've known some patients who are up to their ninth or so, and these are the individuals who are actually typically with their primary care physician or their oncologist or their transplant doctor are actually checking antibodies and going by antibody levels to inform when to get re revaccinated. So as soon as they're seronegative, they get, an, they get another shot. And if you look at the fine print of the very complicated uh, um, diagram from the CDC on how to vaccinate, there's language in there that says that once you're considered fully vaccinated, if you meet certain criteria, specifically if you're immunocompromised, future vaccine booster doses can be given, but they don't really give you any more guidance aside from, I think it's something like every two months and you and your doctor can discuss this. I'm not aware of any other vaccine where it's open-ended like that. Um, and, and you know, I don't know where the future of COVID-19 vaccines is going to be. Is it going to be an annual thing or 
is the guidance still going to be this kind of loose ended you can play it by ear and discuss with your doctor these are these are challenging cases and and it, it, i think that uh, we don't want to leave our t cell friends out it's not only antibodies right yep i this is actually a question that we get asked a lot, and certainly we do have data on even looking at flu vaccinations, for example, in myeloma patients. Uh, we're giving a second dose um, uh, three to four months in, boosts the antibody responses. And so um, I do have patients, just as the ones you're describing, who also have had antibody titers checked and are dosing on that basis and have seen increases in antibody responses in response. But again, we don't know what to do. I, I anticipate there may be more frequent dosing, particularly in those patients with lower responses. But I think time will tell. The good news is that they, they are safe. They, the vaccines are safe. And um, th this is, uh, I think, a, uh, a, a couple of questions. One is, what is the current policy for use of masks in U.S. oncohematology wards for personal and personnel and patients, encouraged or compulsory? I'm going to say that it, it it's uh, diverse based on uh, um, different uh, parts and different cultures in the country. Uh, I would say that uh, if it, if I was king of the world, I would strongly encourage it, uh, uh, bordering on um, on uh, mandating it. But uh, I, I guess I would uh, be in the very strongly encouraging it. Yes, I would agree. There's there's quite a bit of diversity here, and it's really center-dependent. There is no mandate. Our institution, pre-COVID, always masked on our BMT heme malignancy services from the beginning of virus season until the end of virus season, prior to even the existence of COVID. And so we have continued to do that um, uh, at this point in time. Yeah, and it's, it's the same for us. Pre-COVID, during quote-unquote flu season, all our organ transplant and heme cancer wards would be um, compulsory masks. The rest of the, of the year, not. Then in COVID, everything was masked all the time, and now our heme cancer and organ transplant wards are compulsory masking. So with that, uh, thank you for joining us. Uh, thank you all very much. This activity is certified by Penn State College of Medicine. This activity is developed in collaboration with our educational partner, PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Remember to download the slides and practice aids. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash JXH860. This activity is supported by an independent educational grant from AstraZeneca LP.